1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, this is the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Will you pray with me? Father, I would um, just bow before you now and ask you to bless our reading and studying of your word. You know, Lord, that this passage has more mystery and curiosity than many. And at the same time, Lord, you know that there's a purpose that you have for us. My prayer is that we will hear your purpose, that we will know truth, hear truth, believe truth because of our time together today. But also help us to repent of sin and grow toward you. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. The letter that we're reading from Peter is a letter to people who are facing suffering and rejection in a hard world. How do we know that? Because you hear me say it often. Let's review just a few things we've seen so far. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter called the recipients of this letter elect exiles who are scattered. In verse 6, he says they've been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, Peter predicts that the lost will speak against Christians as evildoers in verse 12. He points to servants suffering unjustly in 2.19, doing good and suffering for it in 2.20. In 2.21, Peter says that Christ set us an example to follow in his suffering. In chapter 3, verse 6, Peter has urged wives to do good and not fear what is frightening. In 3, verse 9, Peter tells Christians not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, thus hinting that evil and reviling are on the way. Clearly, Peter wants the church to be ready to face a hard world in which they live. And in our most recent context, last week's sermon, Peter promises that God is going to bless his children who suffer for righteousness' sake, 3.14. In 3.16, Peter reminds us that we will be slandered and our good behavior reviled. And in 3.17, he tells the church it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. As we move forward this morning, we come across one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret fully. One commentator writes, quote, This passage in 1 Peter is the one most debated and written about. 
From the earliest days of the church, it has been understood in very different ways. Even the usually dogmatic Martin Luther commented as he struggled with this passage. Here's the Luther quote to go in. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Thanks, Luther. <laughs> so when we find texts that are obscure like this one, what do we do? Let me ask that we let ourselves avoid, or that we avoid letting ourselves drown in details and minutiae. There is a clear reason why Peter wrote this text for us, and we want to get that. There's a clear truth that you and I are supposed to take from this passage. And we may not be able to answer every trivia question or even need to in order to get the point that the Lord has for us. I'm not going to try to avoid them, but I want you not to let yourself get bogged down in the things that would take your mind off track. So I would suggest to you that this passage is in this book because Peter wants to show the first century Christian something that he or she needed vitally to know. And this passage is here because God wants you and me, Christians living two millennia later, to have the same kind of encouragement. You see, both of us live in worlds where we might suffer for doing what's right. And God wants to show you and me and the people of the first century that Jesus Christ is our one and our only true hope in suffering. So if you're a note taker, make room for five points that we'll find as we work through a text. I'm going to call this sermon, Christ, Our Hope in Suffering. And if we keep that in mind, I think we're going to be able to do okay even with the mysteries. Christ, Our Hope in Suffering. You ready to go? Point number one. Suffering for righteousness looks like Jesus. Suffering for righteousness looks like Jesus. That's our first point. Look with me at verse 18. It begins, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The word for, here at the beginning of this text, connects it just to what we studied last week. It particularly connects us to that reminder of verse 17. It is better, friends, to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. And we might say, well, why is that better? God tells us it's better to suffer for righteousness because Christ suffered once for sins. And the simple point is when we suffer, when we suffer persecutions, when we face hardships because of the wickedness of the world around us, that looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus was perfectly, infinitely righteous. And he suffered the attacks of the world. And he rose from the grave eternally victorious. And we who are his should not be surprised and should not be defeated when we face something similar. In fact, we can be encouraged because what we face actually kind of witnesses to the fact that we do belong to Jesus. In John 15, verses 18 through 21, the Lord Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If they, the world out there, persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. And if they persecute us because of Jesus, that means we're sharing in the sufferings of our master. And though it may seem crazy to a watching world for us to believe, we can find joy in the glory of our Savior even as we are hated by the world around us. So be comforted in Christ, friends, because suffering for righteousness looks like Jesus. Now, in truth, and you've got to get this or you'll miss the passage, all of the rest of this passage is Peter showing us how we can be comforted by the person and work, the suffering, death, resurrection of Christ. Because Jesus is our hope in suffering. Suffering for us looks like Jesus. And so Peter now is going to unpack the work of Christ with some mysterious components thrown in. He's going to show you and me how it is we can find comfort even in our suffering because of Jesus. So point number two then comes. Point number two, simple fact. Jesus is our sacrificial substitute. Jesus is our sacrificial substitute. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So here in verse 18, it doesn't look like a super long verse, does it? Does that feel like a big verse when you look at it with your eyes? Not so huge, right? But man, is there some weighty doctrine in that one verse. Because we see in verse 18 the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, and each phrase matters. So let's take a few moments just to unpack Verse 18, okay? And, and if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, listen very closely because this is your only hope for salvation. And if you are a believer, listen closely so that you can be sure that you grasp what Jesus did for you through his life and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. It begins, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So here's a note. Jesus suffered how many times for sins? That's important. The work that Jesus did on the cross is a one-time, perfect, full payment from the Son to the Father for the sins of every person God is ever going to forgive. Christ suffered to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed. Thus, there is no religion in the world that is accurate that declares that further payment can be made for sin beyond the single perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And, think of the encouragement here, friends, a sin paid for by the blood of Jesus is perfectly, eternally, irrevocably paid for by Jesus and cannot be re-punished by God. Any sin not paid for by Jesus on the cross 
is going to be properly punished by God as the sinner is punished eternally in hell. Next we read, the righteous for the unrighteous. And here, get this, we're going to learn three key truths from that little phrase. One, Jesus, though he suffered, was perfectly righteous before God. That's easy, right? You know that's true. Two, in contrast, Jesus suffered for the sake of the unrighteous sinners like you and me. Three, the idea of Christ suffering as the righteous for the unrighteous, that brings us to the concept of substitution. God allowed the substitution, the replacement of one thing for another thing. Now, there's a few significant theological terms for us to bring to mind here. The, the phrase that you want is vicarious penal substitution. How many of you thought you would write that down today? <laughs> vicarious, V-I-C-A-R-I-O-U-S, penal, P-E-N-A-L, like the first part of the word penalty, for all of you who watched football yesterday. And again, substitution, just do your best, okay? Vicarious is the idea that one lives through another, or one is represented by another. Um, if you think about it today, sometimes you'll hear about someone will accuse a dad of living vicariously through the athletic accomplishments of his son, right? It's like he's getting life even though the son's doing it. It's the idea of one representing another. The word substitution, that's easy, right? That's the concept that one thing is accepted in place of another. You know, can I substitute uh, french fries for the salad? Just sounds like a good idea to me. I don't know about you. The word penal, like I said, it comes, it's just like the word penalty. It's tied to the word penalty. The prison system is called the penal system. And that this is a penal substitution means that one is punished, paying a penalty for the sake of another. So the Bible presents the sacrifice of Jesus as a vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement. Jesus, the righteous one, is punished by God in our place for our benefit as the righteous substitute for the unrighteous. It was done once, it was done perfectly, it was done completely. Vicariously, Jesus represented us. Penal, he paid our penalty. Substitute, he did it in our place. Atonement, he made us right with God. That's important stuff. You need to believe that doctrine. Now what was the purpose that Jesus had when he did this, you ask? The next phrase says that he might bring us to God. Jesus did this work because he intended to bring us to God. His purpose was to, to connect us to the Lord, to bring us before the Lord. That, that phrasing would be like the way that a servant was introduced to a king, to be connected, to be brought into the service of the king. We were wayward. We were lost. We were hopeless. Jesus died with the intent of bringing us to God. And those who love the Reformed view of salvation here will celebrate, will celebrate the fact that Jesus had a purpose 
And I believe Jesus perfectly, completely, unfailingly accomplished everything he intended to do. He suffered, why? To bring us to God. Peter calls us elect exiles in 1-1, elect exiles, chosen exiles. In 1-3, Peter says God caused us to be born again. And there is comfort and there is hope in knowing that whatever work Jesus intended to do, bringing us to God, is a guaranteed success. Jesus will bring to the Father every single person he died to bring. Jesus will not fail in his task, not even one ounce, in all he intended to accomplish. Jesus, if he indeed died as the righteous, as a substitute for the unrighteous, will not substitute for someone who then will not be substituted for. Then finally, we see what Jesus did to suffer as the righteous for the unrighteous when Peter says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this, of course, is reference to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because, friends, as Jesus was on the cross, God the Father perfectly punished Jesus for all of the sins of the unrighteous that God will ever forgive. Then, as Jesus died on the cross, what did Jesus say right before he died? It is finished. And he showed that he knew that when he died, he would have perfectly finished paying the penalty because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus didn't remain dead. He was raised to life. And in his resurrection, we find that Jesus fully had accomplished everything he intended to do. We learn that his sacrifice was perfect and acceptable to God. We learn that Jesus is God in the flesh because not even death can hold Jesus down. Once the work of dying for sin was complete, Jesus can live again. And then he can call us to trust in him for life eternal, for resurrection life, for the life that Jesus now lives. And don't be confused by that final phrase, made alive in the Spirit. That is not saying that Jesus only rose, came to life in spirit, but not in body. There are some heresies that would say that, but not Christian belief. Now, that phrase, made alive, made alive in the Spirit, it could be referring to the fact that Jesus is raised by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In truth, every per, each person of the Trinity is involved in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Did the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Romans 6, 4 says he did. Did Jesus raise himself from the dead? Yes. John 10, 18 says that I have the authority to raise myself up. And we see the involvement of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 11. So it could be Made alive in the Spirit means that he was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. But another possible understanding of made alive in the Spirit, and the one that I think is more likely here, is the contrast between Jesus' pre- and post-resurrection body. Jesus was put to death in ordinary human flesh. He was raised with a glorified resurrection body that will never die again. The body that Jesus lives in is going to live not only on earth as did the first body that he took upon himself, but in the glorious eternal mix of the physical and spiritual and glorious sinless forever that is heaven. Simon Kistemaker writes, 
Scholars are of the opinion that the word body signifies Jesus' earthly life, flesh, Jesus' earthly life. So the word spirit refers to his resurrected life. The term spirit then refers to the spiritual sphere of Christ's post-resurrection existence. Now, is there any scripture to back that up? Because that's, you know, that's a pretty big statement that is being made here. 1 Corinthians 15 42 through 44, has Paul answering the question, well, what kind of body are we going to be raised with if we're raised to eternal spiritual life? And Paul even used the analogy of like, it's kind of like a seed, you know, a seed falls to the ground and dies and something grows out of it. You know, your body has to die so that, that there has to be a new body in your resurrection life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, we read, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Then listen. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So if you take the time to read 1 Corinthians 15, and I would say read 42 all the way to the end of the chapter, you're going to see that the apostles understood a distinction between pre- and post-resurrection bodies, unglorified and glorified bodies. And they refer to the post-resurrection body, the glorified body, as a spiritual body. That is not a denial, friends, that you will have a real physical body after your resurrection. You most certainly will. But it's a statement that there are qualitative differences in the body you have now and in the body that you will receive at the return of Christ. Let me ask you, how many of you are happy that there will be qualitative differences between the body you have now and the one that you get at the return of Jesus? Is anybody for that? Amen. And I would suggest to you that it is very likely here in verse 3 when Peter says Jesus was put to death in the body in the flesh but made alive in the spirit that he's referencing the glorified resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. Now the point that we should get here should not take us too far from the context though. Peter is using this doctrine to encourage us. Peter's not saying let's have a long dragged out debate on what the word spirit means. Peter wants you to think about this. If you're suffering, you look like Jesus. Jesus suffered. And Jesus accomplished the perfect will of God in his suffering. Jesus suffered even to the point of death. And he rose from the grave to live forever. So we who know Jesus have hope in Jesus because Jesus is our sacrificial substitute. And Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. And I would be remiss if I did not say to everyone who hears this, you must turn away from your sin and you must believe in Jesus to be saved. If you want to be forgiven by God, if you want to avoid the wrath and judgment of God, if you want to live in eternal joy, you've got to get under the grace of God. Turn from sin, believe in Jesus, ask Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And if you do, you're going to find out that Jesus suffered for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. His death and his resurrection are your only hope to have life. So come to Jesus as your sacrificial substitute before it's too late. I would urge you. Third point. Ready for point three? 
Jesus confirms the judgment of God. Jesus confirms the judgment of God. Look at 19 through the beginning of verse 20. We're speaking of in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, if you can't tell, we just hit the weird part of the passage. And it raises for us a multitude of questions. Where did Jesus go? When did Jesus go there? To whom did Jesus preach or proclaim? What did Jesus proclaim? This is a great example of a passage in which we could get so bogged down over the mystery and the arguments that between the different teachers out there that we miss the intent of the passage. I don't want you to do that. Remember that whatever we say here, this is about exalting Jesus and this is about encouraging suffering Christians. Please don't lose that even while we briefly consider this weird text. Jesus in the Spirit preached to spirits in prison. By the way, for those who like to draw pictures and doodle in their notes, this may be the best passage ever for that. All right, first, what does it mean that Jesus is in the Spirit? If I'm correct that in the Spirit means that Jesus did this in his resurrection body, then whatever Jesus does here, this preaching that he does here, takes place after the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't have his resurrection body on he hadn't been made alive in the Spirit, as that says, until after the resurrection. Thus, the view that this passage has something to do with what Jesus did during the time of his crucifixion on Good Friday and his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday is incorrect. There are those who have claimed that Jesus, on Saturday after his resurrection, before his son, or Saturday after his crucifixion, before his Sunday resurrection, that Jesus went to hell for some reason. They, some people have said that Jesus went there to complete his suffering, finish paying for sins. Some people say that Jesus went there to preach to Old Testament saints. Some people say that he went there to preach to the lost. And it gets even more confusing if you've ever read or recited the Apostles' Creed because you have that phrase, he descended into hell. You've heard that before, right? How many of you heard that and felt like that felt very confusing to you? Yeah, very much, right? And I'm going to say to you that I reject the notion in general that Jesus did this sort of thing the way at least that makes you think. Jesus did not suffer in hell after his death. Please note that. Jesus did not suffer in hell after his death. On the cross, Jesus declared his work was finished. Jesus promised the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? John 19, 30, Luke 23, 43. Jesus did not say to the thief on the cross, I will meet you in paradise as soon as I finish something up in hell. Important to know. The language that Jesus preached to imprisoned spirits, spirits in prison, doesn't tend to fit the biblical language for the souls of any human beings. Not, that's not the way that we write about them, typically. 
Jesus did not, in my opinion, enter hell for any purpose between his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's not what he was up to on Saturday. That phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says he descended into hell, it would be more accurate to say that he descended to the grave, that he went to a place where he was really physically dead, not that he descended to hell when you think of the place of torment. If you understand the word as like the word Hades or other languages would use other terms, that would make sense there, that he went to the place of the dead. Sure, we can say that Jesus was really dead. But don't let yourself think Jesus went to the lake of fire because that would give you a very false, very confusing notion as to what Jesus did. And I don't believe this passage has anything to do with the Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now there's another popular view. This is the one I was taught in seminary. It says that that Jesus preached by speaking through the mouth and the witness of Noah to the people of Noah's day. Now, 1 Peter 1.11 does talk about prophets being curious to understand what the Spirit of Christ was telling them in the Old Testament. So there's at least the potential that that view is true. Um, that's, uh, that's John Piper's view, by the way, if you wanted to know like somebody who has a name and who believes that. But I don't think it fits the text best either. I really don't. Instead, I believe that this passage has to do with something that Jesus did while in his resurrection body, after his resurrection. Jesus preached, he proclaimed, he made a proclamation to bound evil spirits, demons in the abyss. Now, where in the world would you get an idea that there's such a thing to even think about? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that God did not spare angels, particular angels, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. In Jude, the sixth verse says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Weird, huh? Well, both of those obscure verses speak about imprisoned fallen angels. We see in Scripture that demonic forces played a major role in the corruption of humanity in Genesis chapter 6. And that corrupted humanity brought about the flood of Noah, which is what we're talking about in this section, right? And apparently, God bound those particular demons who corrupted and misled and did all the whatever that they did in Genesis 6. God bound those demons in a spiritual prison that sometimes is called hell, sometimes it's called the abyss. In Luke 8.31, we see a group of demons begging Jesus, don't cast us into the abyss. We don't want to go where those other guys are. That's a place of imprisonment. And I believe it's to that group of imprisoned demons that Jesus made the proclamation that Peter's talking about here in 3.19. That gives a real question. What in the world is Jesus going to preach to demons? The Bible doesn't tell us for sure what he said. But I would guess that Jesus walked in and declared his victory. 
This is not a sermon calling them to repentance. They did not sing several verses of Just As I Am. This was Jesus walking in and declaring victory over spirits who in days past had thought they could destroy and derail the plan of God. By the way, Colossians chapter 2 verse 15, speaking of the resurrected Lord Jesus, says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's words for, for spiritual forces, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. By the way, a triumph was a victory parade in the days of Rome. Jesus seems to have led some sort of victory parade to shame the evil forces that thought they could beat God. A friend of mine, when I was talking to him about this, declared this to be a victory lap. Jesus shamed the demonic forces by his perfect life, by his sacrificial death, in his resurrection from the grave, and his, his ascension to heaven, which we'll read about in verse 22 of this chapter. But in that process, I would propose that Jesus made a point to go tell the demons in prison they have lost, that Jesus is victorious, that God's plan is fully accomplished. No, we don't have Jesus' words here, and I do not know what the Greek is for na 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 but I think that's what happened here. I think this is the best explanation we have for what Jesus proclaimed over the spirits. Okay, now... Heed my warning. Don't let your mind get so lopped off in this because you think I'm a complete nut job or that you're just picturing it. Don't let your mind chase this passage so far that you forget its context. Why would Peter write this? Saints face suffering. Jesus suffered and rose from the grave and Jesus in his resurrection and Jesus in his ascension went and declared his victory over every single evil force. Jesus confirms, upholds the judgment of God. Jesus looks at the imprisoned demons and he says, yes, the decision God made, my father made when he imprisoned you to begin with, it is still sticking. You guys failed. And for a suffering Christian, this is a source of hope, and it's a source of comfort. We can know deep down that if Jesus upholds the, the judgment of God, and those who oppose God, those who would hurt us, they will face the very same God of justice. We can know that the evil will not ultimately triumph over the people of God. We can know that God wins completely, forever, over all. We can know that we are on the winning team if we're children of God. And so we can face a hard life knowing that God's justice is going to uphold our cause because our cause is God's glory. Fourth point. Jesus grants the grace of God. Jesus grants the grace of God. That's far more alliterative than I meant for it to be when I wrote it down. 1 Peter 3, 20, the end through 21. Look, what was our last topic? The last thing he spoke about was Noah's ark, right? Speaking of that Noah and the flood thing, the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our hope is not just in the justice of God, the punishment of God, but our, our, our hope is in the mercy of God. Peter lets the concept of the flood of Noah's day and the ark take his mind sort of down another road for a second, right? And his purpose is to show us the mercy of God that is right there side by side with the justice of God. While all of humanity was to be destroyed in the flood, you remember that from Genesis 6, right? We're going to kill them all. God chose to save a group of eight people. Noah, his three sons, Mrs. Noah, and the three wives, right? You can read Genesis 6 through 8 for that. And then, and then Peter lets the water of the flood think about the water of Christian baptism. How? The water in which we are baptized reminds us both of death and of life, doesn't it? The flood waters in Noah's day, they brought death to the world even as they lifted up the ark, giving life to Noah. Now, some people are confused by that, that statement where Peter says, baptism, which now saves you. Does that ring odd in your ears? Yes. Peter is not indicating that baptism, the physical act, brings about spiritual salvation. Peter is not saying what the Roman Catholic Church would say, that, that baptism causes regeneration. That's not what he's saying here. Why? Well, I mean, he includes the next line to explain himself. Salvation does not come because of the removal of dirt from the body. Literally, by the way, filth from the flesh. There is no such thing as salvation to be found in a human physical ritual. Instead, your salvation comes connected to something that cannot be disconnected from baptism. The appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if you have a different translation than the ESV, you might see appeal to God translated at differently. You might see it as a pledge to God for a good conscience. And that, that Greek word could be appeal or could be pledge. It has both meanings. The former meaning, appeal, would say that we are saved when we, by faith, ask God, please have mercy on us because of Jesus. Is that true, by the way, that that's how you're saved? Sure enough, right? The latter indicates that salvation comes as we come to Christ for salvation in repentance, pledging to live according to the Lordship of Christ. Is that true too? Yeah, it is. Well, since both are true, let's not have a wrestling match over which part of the Greek word should be translated which way there. If you want to be saved, you're not going to be saved because of water. If you want to be saved, you in faith cry out to Jesus asking for mercy. And you cry out to Jesus pledging that you will from now on live for him in repentance. You repent and you believe to find salvation. Now I've got to make a quick note on the doctrine of Christian baptism here. I want you to notice two things. First, think with me, and let's just be logical human beings here. The only logical way to picture baptism in this passage 
a world-covering flood, the only logical way that the waters of baptism really can depict death and resurrection is for baptism to be exactly what the word means, immersion in water. To be baptized is to be, to be immersed, to be dipped or dunked under water. But the point is, you dip, you put something under the water and bring it out. And that symbolizes both death and life. That's the only logical thing Peter could be talking about here. Secondly, notice that baptism in this passage, baptism that saves, that's what he says, is solidly linked to your appeal to Jesus for mercy and to your pledge to Jesus of repentance, right? So first of all, in that, there's no hint of baptism being applied to someone to cause their salvation. Baptism doesn't cause this. Baptism is connected to one's appeal for a good conscience, to one's belief in Christ and one's pledge to follow him. And there is no indication here of baptism being thought of as a sign that a parent applies to an unbelieving child. Baptism is a sign that only fits this passage if the one being baptized is consciously coming to Jesus in faith and repentance. Baptism saves in this passage because baptism cannot in any way be biblically removed from salvation by grace alone through personal faith alone in Christ alone. So there's my baptism doctrine moment. The beauty in this passage, friends, though, is not the theology of baptism and it's not the story of Noah. The beauty is this. Jesus grants the grace of God. For suffering believers, the mercy of God is assured. So when you're suffering, right? When you're scared, when you feel like the world is just going nuts around you, and I don't know how we're going to make it, and our country is so messed up, and what if they start passing laws where we can't preach, and what are we going to do? Remember your cry to Jesus and your pledge of your life to Jesus. Remember your Christian baptism. And let those things remind you that you have hope in the risen Lord Jesus no matter what anybody in the world tries to do to you. That's what Peter wants you to get. Fifth point, last point. Jesus reigns eternally over all. Verse 22, speaking of Jesus Christ, that was the, last, the, the noun of the last phrase. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. Here's the conclusion of Peter's thought for our encouragement today. The same Jesus we've been speaking about all along, he's not just risen from the grave. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is enthroned in honor and glory in heaven, 
And part of Jesus being enthroned in heaven is the reminder that Jesus is Lord over all the angels, over all the spiritual forces, all the mighty things that have ever been created. Jesus is Lord over all. We know this. Jesus went and preached the spirits in prison. And now we see a final reminder of how you and I can have hope to live in a world that may try to kill us. Jesus is Lord. And there's no force in the universe that could ever take us from him. Jesus reigns eternally over all. So if you don't know Jesus, I urge you come to Jesus. There is grace for all who turn from their sin and cry out for Jesus in faith. But there is certain and eternal judgment for everyone who rejects Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, let this passage remind you of reasons that you should have hope. Why should you have hope if you suffer? Well, suffering, suffering for righteousness looks like Jesus. And Jesus was our sacrificial substitute. And Jesus confirms the judgment of God. And Jesus grants the grace of God. And Jesus reigns eternally over all. So if you're in Christ, you can live through everything that this world would ever throw at you. Because you will reign with Jesus forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know our deep need of you. And I pray, dear God, I pray that you will take this text and encourage the hearts of the saints. And I pray that you will take this text and you will impress upon those who don't know you that they need to come to Jesus for mercy before it's too late. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to have the wisdom to know you and follow you faithfully. Lord God, you're good. You're worthy. We praise you. Take our lives. Change them for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.